as we're seated. Uh, please open your Bible, if you can find it, to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the first words of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. <clears throat> God says in his word, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's so much wrapped up in those words. Such powerful words. They are the very first words that God gives to us in his word. Anything, everything that we can observe, study, understand as physical beings is found in summary form in those 10 English words. It's been pointed out by others many times that the man who coined the phrase survival of the fittest, his name was Herbert Spencer, and Charles Darwin borrowed that phrase from him. He, uh, Herbert Spencer noted that there are five basic fundamental manifestations that all natural phenomena in the universe can ultimately be divided into, five of them. They are space, time, matter, motion or action, and force. He was an ardent evolutionist. He was an early part of those who tried to explain the origin and the development of the universe without God. And so he said, everything can be understood, everything that we can ever understand about the universe comes down to space, time, matter, motion or action, and force. And he went on to say that four of those are dependent on one. Four are built up or abstracted from force. And no one's really argued that assertion from a physical standpoint. But like I said, many others have pointed this out. But God, in his infinite wisdom and love, has left himself a witness in these very first 10 words of his word, he has given us this so that we can know who he is, we can know who we are, we can know why we need a savior, we can know who that savior is, we can know how to live for him. And the opening words invite all who have begun to observe all that God has done, everything he's given us to begin with that we need to know is in these words. In the beginning, that's time. God, who is that force from which everything else comes, created, that's action or motion. The heavens, that is space, and the earth, that's matter. All five of those basic fundamental realities of the universe are here in the first ten words of Genesis. As God opens his word with these words, we invite all who hear them to hear God's word with us. If you believe that it was evolution that created this universe apart from God, we invite you to hear with us these words from God. Consider the implications for your life and for eternity from what God says as we study these words together. If you believe in evolution guided by God, we invite you to hear God's words here together with us. Consider the implications of the power and the sufficiency of God's word to reveal who you are, who we are, what he wants from us. If you believe some other God created everything, we still invite you to hear these words with us, these words from God, and consider what he says, how, how he has presented to us and given to us what he's done to create it all. If you believe that God created the heavens and the earth, just as God says here in Genesis, we invite you also to hear these words from God, and consider whether these words really shape 
your life, your view of life, your view of the world, your view of what you're here for and your purpose, especially consider whether the way that you share these words of truth with others would be in any way characterized by love. These are the opening words, and we do plan to study all of Genesis together, but before we get started, you may be wondering, why are we going to start studying the book of Genesis? It's a good question. It's a valid question. And I've got three reasons for us in our notes. We can take the first reason. In that first blink, we'll put the word inspiration. The word inspiration. Now, we know every word comes from the mouth of God. Every word in the Bible comes from the mouth of God. I alluded to that just a minute ago. We believe these are the words of God. And we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is Scripture. And so we don't want to just gloss over this. We don't want to just, you know, move past this quickly. We want to consider this and understand that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, Even as we get to the genealogies, you may be surprised. There are lessons in the genealogies for us to live and grow by. If your good friend came to you and said, I've got something really important to talk with you about, you know, you would turn to that friend and you would say, okay, let's talk. What do we need to talk about? What do I need to hear? What do I need to know? You would give that person, your friend, your undivided attention. God says, listen, we need to talk about everything. (laughs) And he says that here in his word, and so we're going to give our attention to him into what he has said. Now, for some of us, why we would study Genesis is pretty obvious, but not for others. And that's why I want to spend a few minutes on that. Today, it's more important than ever to understand what God has given to us in Genesis. Over many years, as people have become increasingly uh, hostile toward Genesis and, and rejected more of Genesis, they have increasingly become more confused about big issues and little issues, about basic fundamental issues and more complicated issues. And sometimes if we're honest, we might start to feel the tug of some of those ideas and some of those influences with what the world is telling us about these foundational issues and fundamental answers to fundamental questions. So even if the basic issues are clear to you, for most of us around us, even for some here this morning, they're not very clear. And even if we believe that we know the right answers, many times we can even be wrong with the right answers if we're presenting them wrongly, if we're believing them for the wrong reasons, and that's important as we'll talk about. So we come to the inspired Word of God to train us, to teach us, to guide us into the proper way of viewing ourselves the world around us, what happens, why it happens, and more. And there's no more foundational book for that than Genesis. But we have to make sure we are prepared as we come to God's Word. So here's what I want us to think about as we begin our study. If these are God's words, the breathed-out Word of God, am I willing to change what I think, what I believe, to match what God thinks, what He believes? That's the question that we always consider when we come to the Word of God, but particularly here in Genesis, if I believe something different than what God says, well, does God need to change or do I need to change? And so inspiration is the first reason that we are going to study Genesis together. A second reason is uh, the reason of influencing, influencing. Part of our reason for studying this is to help us to be ready to explain in love the truth of what God has said 
about us so that we can explain why we believe so differently from the people around us. You say, what do you mean? Our culture, along with a lot of the rest of the world, is secularizing more and more quickly all the time. That means they're getting away from God. They're getting away from the Bible. There are other religions in the world. They have different beliefs from Christianity. But the fastest group of identification for belief systems all around us is the nothing. The nuns, we call them. N-O-N-E-S. Not the Roman Catholic nuns, but the, the, the nun. What religious, what religious affiliation are you? None. That's the fastest growing group among people today. And the nuns have not only rejected Genesis in place of another religious text that might help them with morality or something, the nuns have replaced Genesis with a completely secular, godless cosmology, which is the study of how things started, and uh, ontology, where, where we, uh, how we came to be, our existence, biology, geology, all the other ologies and isms. It's, it's a godless beginning point, starting point. For many of the people who live around us and work around us, they have a starting point of an accident and ultimate meaninglessness in the universe. If nothing was created, it was all formed by accident or chance, then we're all accidents. We're just electrical impulses and chemical reactions, and one day those will stop. But that starting point continues into the way that life is viewed, and all of the world around us, and and even ourselves, the worldview begins with the questions that Genesis answers. That becomes real in contemporary issues like creation versus evolution, or who mankind is, what our purpose is, what is a male or a female? (laughs) Abortion, where identity comes from, how you identify yourself. These basic questions about life are answered here in Genesis, and this is what I meant (laughs) by being willing to change what I believe with what God says. My view of the world has to begin with what God says. It has to continue in what God says, and it needs to end with what God says. Because if you reject Genesis, you reject God's purpose for creation, the reason that everything exists, and for yourself. If you reject Genesis, you can ignore the priority and function of work. This is part of our worldview. You know, work is a bore. It's a chore. I hate going to work. Here it is Monday again. I can't wait till Friday. I can't wait to get out of work. But work was something that God created for man to do in the garden before the fall in Genesis. Family and marriage just become tools that you can use to get what you want, right? I want to feel needed. I want to feel important, so I'll have a family, rather than part of God's perfect plan for us and for his glory. Gender becomes an outdated, unfair fixation of a society that just needs to wake up. When you reject Genesis, you can cast off the concept of sin, accountability to a holy God. You can ignore his covenants, his promises. You lose the real answers to the questions of why I'm here. And how come I'm not perfect? And how come this world is so messed up? And how does the world get fixed? And how do I get fixed? You lose sight of the fact that life and creation isn't really all about me. It's about the God who created it, and the God in whom we live and move and have our being, it's all about his plan coming to pass. And so we correct our minds, and when we become corrected in our thinking and our minds, we begin to know God, we begin to love this God, we begin to follow him, we understand ourselves better, we see our need for him to save us from the sin that's infected us because of our rebellion against him. We come to know ourselves better. We come to know what's happening in this world, not everything and not the reason for everything, but we understand why things go the way they go. 
we come to know why we need a Savior, who the Savior is, and, and we get to live in love for this God who has saved us, and that's beginning here in Genesis. But we also learn how to share all of that with those around us. Now, in case we're unsure of the level of confusion in our culture about the basic realities that are in Genesis, of the 50 states in the United States, 11 of them now have a third option for gender on the driver's license form. 11 out of 50. You say, well, how could that happen? Well, it can happen because 42% of the U.S. population believes that any form that asks for gender should have a third option available. 42%, almost half of the people in the United States think there should be a third option. What about where do we come from? How do we answer that question? Well, the most reliable report I could find was from six years ago, and it said that in America, 65% of Americans believe evolution in some way, shape, or form made humans the way they are today. 65%. Now, if you just narrow that down to the people who are under 30 years of age, it's 73%. And that was six years ago. How do so many people become so confused about an issue as basic as where we came from, or male or female, or how the universe came to exist, or all of the questions that that are going around in our society and and our culture? How, How do we become confused about these things? Christian, it's not a difference between left and right, Republican and Democrat. It's not a question about generations or colors or genders or intelligence. The difference is the starting point. How do you you begin? Where do you begin to think about all of the answers to these questions? Our answers, our beliefs from what God has said are because we believe this is what God has said. This is not, this is our starting place for what we believe, not politics or economics or winning elections or maintaining power. This is God's word. Here is what God has said. This is what we need to know about ourselves, about who we are and who God is. And we need to remember that we didn't invent this. We didn't make this up. And we're not inventing this position to be difficult or to be different. We need now more than ever to be able to say, this is what we believe and we want you to know this so that you can be saved. Now, I'm not saying that you need to believe in the strict literary, uh, literal interpretation of Genesis or you're not saved. We're not going to go that far. But this is the beginning of how we can be saved, why we need to be saved. We're not trying to win arguments or appear smarter than people or achieve anything for ourselves. We have been commanded by God to speak the truth in love to the people around us. And this is the beginning of it. Um, This is what I believe and why, and I'm telling you this so that you too can be saved. Not so I can win an argument. So part of our study for Genesis, the reason that we would study is so that we can be able to speak to others the truth of God in love. You know, that's what Paul did when he had a chance to speak to people who didn't know who Jesus was. That's where he began in Acts 17. He started with Genesis. Paul says, he, that was God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. See, that's where Paul started when he started to evangelize the people listening to him. It wasn't to win an argument, but to witness to others for Jesus. And so we study Genesis because it's the inspired word of God and because of our desire to influence those around us with the word of God. But is there any benefit to us? Well, that's the third reason that we'll study Genesis. Number three in our notes, that blank, will be the word instruction. 
Instruction to, to teach us, to help us also. In Romans 15, Paul told us why we would ever want to read the Old Testament. As New Testament saints, why would we read the Old Testament? He says in Romans 15 verse 4, whatever was written in former days, that's the back part of our Bible, the the back two-thirds of our Bible, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Why? That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Have you ever thought of the Old Testament that way? Reading the Old Testament about our instructions, our training, our teaching for life and godliness. The word instruction in Romans 15 is the same word that we have in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is profitable for teaching. It's teaching and instruction and, and helping us to learn what we need to learn, what God has told us, what we need to teach and what we need to learn. So why would we teach the Old Testament? So that through endurance, which is patient waiting, We're patiently waiting, persevering through all that happens as we await the return of our Savior. He says, and through encouragement of the Scriptures, encouragement is calling us all together alongside, cheering on one another, joyfully calling us to learn from the Scriptures, to live it out in encouraging, edifying ways so that we are enduring and so that we're being encouraged so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's what he says. Teaching Genesis brings endurance for the end. Teaching Genesis, learning Genesis, studying Genesis gives us encouragement to obey that we may have hope now and in the future. And we know that when the Bible talks about hope, it's not, I sure hope it happens. It's an absolute certainty in the outcome and an expectation for the timing. Biblical hope does not disappoint. Now Paul's saying that about all of Scripture. New Testament and Old Testament, but it begins in Genesis. Do we want to have more hope? Do we want to be able to endure to the end and be encouraged as we learn and endure with hope? We need to study God's Word, all of it, including Genesis. It begins to shape our worldview so we believe and think and act rightly. So, those are three, I think, good reasons to begin studying Genesis. Now, I have another reason that doesn't appear in your notes, but it's built on those three And I hope it helps us understand why we would study Genesis before even other books today in what many are calling the last days. Now, it's not wrong to call these days that we're living in the last days. It's not wrong to call them that because Jesus' first coming on this earth signaled the beginning of the end. Did you know that? Hebrews 9.26 says that Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. When he sacrificed himself for our sins, that was the end of the age, that was right at the beginning of the end of the ages. It's not wrong to call these the last days. John says in 1 John 2.18, written at the end of the first century, children, it is the last hour. That's what John said. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. And so it's not wrong to say that these are the last days. These have been the last days for the past 2,000 years. (laughs) But what are we to do until the end comes? God has given us some information about the end. Everything that he wants us to know, everything that we need to know about the end is in his word. Part of what we cannot know is the when. But as we see the end approaching, we're told over and over again to continue in what we've been given. 
Here's just a sampling of verses. We won't go through these. You don't have to turn here. These are in your notes. You can study these. Second Thessalonians 3, the issue there was that people thought, oh, we missed it. Jesus came back and we missed it. Or, or, or he's still coming and, and I don't have to do anything. I, don't have, I can just sit around and do I can quit my job. I can give away all my stuff because Jesus is coming back right now. That was an issue there. So in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul is telling them, no, don't do that. Do what he told you to do. Keep doing. He says, do not grow weary in doing good. Keep it up. Keep doing the good that he told us to do. That's the main lesson that Jesus gave in Mark chapter 20, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 is a, is a really well-known chapter about the end, about, about what's coming. And, and he says, okay, I'll answer the three questions you asked me. Um, when, will be, when will be the sign, or uh, when these things will be, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the ages? Those are the three questions they asked. He said, okay, I'll start to answer those as much as I can answer them that you need to know. But the lesson Jesus had for them at the end of that was to be ready. Just be ready. You don't know when it's going to happen. Stay awake and be ready because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And he said, this is what he told them, blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So doing is what his master told him to do. We are the servants of the master and he has told us what to do. And so what we're to do is what his word says. Not to make it up, not to quit our jobs and and give away everything we have and just, he's coming right now. Do what he's told us to do. See, if we get too, si- too excited about the end and, and we're not grounded in the beginning first and remaining and living there what, with what God's given us, we have more of a risk of being deceived about the end. If we're not grounded in our faith in the word of God, we're not ready for Jesus. We're ready for deceit. And that's what Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 13. He said, people are going to be running around all over the place. <gasps> There's Jesus. There's the Messiah. He's coming back. Oh, no, there he is. There he, here he is. You, you follow this guy. Follow him. Right? And people are putting faith in Donald Trump as Savior or calling him Antichrist. People had put faith in, in Barack Obama as Messiah, and other people called him Antichrist. And people are going to be confused about the end because they haven't been grounded in the Word of God in the beginning and through the middle to the end. Jesus says people are, people are going to get even more convincing about the end. People are going to be able to do signs and wonders. And he says to lead astray the elect, even if possible, if it was even possible. They're going to be very convincing at the end. So we need to be grounded in his word, doing what he said to do, knowing what he said, listening, obeying, trusting him. It's a protection for our minds. Another one of the protections that God gives us is right here, the church not here, this building, <laughs> but one another, the church of Christ. He says, you need to make sure that you're meeting together. Make sure you're coming to be together as the church until you see the end coming, and, and then you can just kind of forget about it because he's going to come back any minute, right? Is that what he says? No, he says, all the more as you see the day approaching. If you think that day is coming, you need to be in church even more, not less, that's one of the grounds for us, the, the foundations that we have. The pillar and ground of the truth is the church. Do you remember in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascended into heaven before the disciples and, and they're all standing there and they're just gazing up into the sky and maybe they're wondering, is he coming back yet? Is he coming back now? <laughs> he just, is he coming back now? God had to send two angels to them to say, guys, come on, <laughs> wake up. Go do what he told you to do. He's coming back the way that you saw him go, but go do what he said to do. 
Jesus said in John 5, you, you study the scriptures, they're what testify about me. Jesus says the scriptures, and he was talking specifically at that time about the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't even been written yet. The Old Testament talks all about me, Jesus said. He's the theme and what it's all about. A strong verse for considering why to study Genesis in particular from Jesus' own words was Matthew 23. He says to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. But not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. So don't be hypocrites like them, but they're teaching you from Moses' seat. Who wrote Genesis? Moses no matter what you might read in commentaries about the, the Wellhausen theolo- uh, theory of JEDP. They're teaching from Moses who wrote Genesis. Listen to that, Jesus said. He told them, listen to that and do what it says. Even stronger, in Jesus' own words, finally, after he was raised, he spent time with his disciples. He was preparing them for his ascension. He says in Luke 24 that he opened their mind to understand the scriptures and he started in the law of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then the prophets and the Psalms. Jesus helped the disciples understand who he was, why he came, what he came to do, why he's going back from the Old Testament, specifically starting in what Moses wrote. See, this is how we prepare for Jesus' return, how we can be ready for the return of our Savior and Lord, because Genesis is about Jesus. (laughs) That's the best reason that we can find for studying Genesis. If you were going to build a house in Tornado Alley, (laughs) you might want to know a little bit about tornadoes, but you never really know when they're going to come. So what you would spend more of your time on is setting the foundation of your house, getting ready, getting everything prepared for whenever it might come. That's what we're doing in Genesis. We can study about his coming. We can study the storms that will come against us. We can study everything that might happen, but we really need to be ready by getting the foundation, the ground set, hardened, and ready for whatever comes. So we're studying Genesis together. But an objection that might come up. If you've been in church any amount of time, if you've been in the world any amount of time, and and people think that you're a Christian, and they they wonder if you believe in Genesis, the question may come up, well... (laughs) Isn't Genesis just a myth? That's what goes in that blank there. What if Genesis is just a myth? What if it's not literal? It was, just, it was written as a saga, kind of a legend, a myth about, um, you know, the important part is that God did it and that we need to believe that. You know, can I believe, can I believe that Genesis, at least the first part, is a legend or, or a saga, uh, a, a myth that's not literal? We're on dangerous ground there. If we believe that, if we believe that Genesis is a myth, um, we need to stay away from Genesis. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, he says, you know, listen, I, I put you there to urge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor devote themselves to myths. <laughs> he says, you're there to teach doctrine, the doctrine, not, not all the other doctrines, and not any myths or endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So Paul said to the young pastor, teach what God's given us by faith to be received, that's his word, not myths that promote speculations. If Genesis is a myth, we need to not teach it. We need to not read it. We need to be studying what God has given us by faith. So if Genesis is, then we need to be studying it. 
Later in that same letter, Paul makes it more clear even than the first time. Later in the same letter, in chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. So again, if if Genesis is a myth, you need to ignore it (laughs) and, and get away from it and don't read it because we're commanded to stay away from myths. Now, it's not surprising in that same verse, in that same chapter, just three verses earlier in 1 Timothy 4, there were people who were teaching others to abstain from marriage. Don't get married. It's the same people that were thinking that, or that were teaching myths, right? Genesis is not a myth. Marriage is first taught and explained as important in Genesis. There are a lot of other ideas out there that are myths. A lot of other philosophies and teachings that have abandoned, to what, uh, abandoned what God has said and made up their own truth. At least that's how Jesus saw it. When Jesus was challenged about divorce, you remember what he said in Mark 10? What scripture did he quote? He, he quoted Genesis, two different verses in Genesis. But it's not just that he quoted those verses. This is important. Jesus didn't just quote verses. Here's what he says. They asked him about divorce. Is it okay? Um, you know, Moses allowed it. Jesus says, from the beginning of creation, he quoted Genesis 1.27, and then he quoted Genesis 2.24. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus did, he said to them, from the beginning of creation, not from the beginning of the actual human race because it was some point in the the past, we don't really know when because it just happened over, you know, so much time. Right at the beginning of creation because what God said in those first six days and what he did in those first six days, part of it was in uh, making man and woman and bringing them together in marriage at the beginning of creation, not the beginning of the human race, whenever that might have been. Jesus didn't believe that Genesis was a myth or a legend or some kind of saga or that the days were not literal in Genesis. That's what he said. Later on, as he's charging the scribes and the Pharisees with sin, a constant sin, persecuting the prophets, in Matthew 23, Jesus included the blood of Abel, that was Adam and Eve's son, as being charged to them. He was charging the religious leaders with killing prophets all the way back to Abel. So in other words, you know, you don't don't charge somebody with fake blood. (laughs) This is real blood from a real human being. That means that Abel was not a fable, right? I don't know if anybody's ever said that before. I came up with it this week. I was so proud of it. I had had to put it out there. Abel was not a fable. Somebody smarter than me has probably said that before. But anyway, None of this was a myth. Okay, last one is Luke 17. Jesus references three different people from Genesis and the judgment that God brought during their lifetime. He equated it with the judgment that is to come when he returns. He references Noah, Lot, and Lot's wife. None of them were in the myth, in the saga, in the legend that happened, but actual people in actual events. We cannot believe that Genesis is a myth. We we can't think that it's symbolic. Jesus didn't. We're explicitly warned against having anything to do with myth. And by the way, there are a lot more quotations in the New Testament of Genesis. Those were just some of Jesus' own words. Now, the idea of Genesis being a myth uh, comes from many today who have bought into a rival claim about the origin of the universe, a completely natural or without God explanation. Much of the world wants to deny God and his role in creation so that a new theory has been developed 
uh, we call it evolution, and it began with a big bang. The Big Bang is the prevailing natural explanation for the creation of our universe, and in our culture, for those around us, it is the growing majority view for how this came to be. What I want to do right now is take a minute to compare it with what we know of the Genesis account. Everything that we know of, everything that we can see, is made up of elements like hydrogen and helium and oxygen and iron and and all of the elements. Remember the periodic table of elements in, in school? According to contemporary theories, before the Big Bang, all that existed was a concentrated bubble of energy. It was hot, it was dense, it was small, and from this came all of the elements and everything that made up the universe. This concentrated ball of energy that made the countless stars, the galaxies, the solar system, life, and everything on it, everything needed to create the entire universe was contained in this bubble of energy that was the size of a peach. (laughs) The size of a peach. With a temperature of over a quadrillion degrees. What was a quadrillion? We've got thousands, you've got millions, you've got billions, you've got trillions, you've got quadrillions. Okay, so it was super small, unimaginably hot, and unthinkably dense. How dense? When it exploded in the Big Bang, according to these theories, within the first three minutes of the explosion, most of the hydrogen and helium that would ever be needed in the entire universe for the next 13.8 billion years or more was created. Now, as for where this bubble came from, many contemporary theories have now embraced essentially the theory of the bounce. It's a a universe that bounces back and forth from expansion back to collapse and expansion to collapse. It has forever in the past been bouncing. It will continue to forever bounce in the future, expanding and collapsing. We happen to exist in one of those expansion phases where it has exploded into what we have today, but eventually it will collapse back into the, a peach-sized bubble or something else of energy that will then start over again, or it won't, creating a brand new universe, or it won't. It may happen to produce what we have. It may happen to produce something completely different. There's no way of knowing what life or the universe was like in the previous bounces or in future bounces. We have no idea, but... The the idea is, it's an eternal, active energy exploding this time into everything we observe, and as an inconceivable, eternal bubble, it defied all laws of physics and time and existence. Guided by nothing, it arrived at everything that we see through further explosions. It produced every element that will ever be required to create the universe. Further, it happened in just such a way to create order in the universe so that what is observable like gravity and time and temperature and physics and all the laws that we've come up with is perceived and recorded in predictable ways. From that peach-sized bubble into the ordered universe, which is estimated to be 94 billion light years across. It expanded to create what is today estimated to be 2 trillion galaxies. Uh, Galaxies are collections of stars and solar systems. One of the two trillion galaxies in the universe is the Milky Way, which is our galaxy. It's considered to be of average large size, being 100,000 light years across. That's the distance, uh, a light year is the distance light travels in a year. Immense scale here, containing, uh, the Milky Way galaxy contains somewhere between 200 and 400 billion stars in this medium-large size galaxy. Even more astonishing, it created our solar system within this galaxy 
using what is a medium-sized star from the 200 to 400 billion just in our galaxy. One of them is a medium-sized, that's our sun. Yet within our solar system, the sun is the most massive object in our entire solar system. It takes up 99.8% of the mass in our solar system, just the big glowing ball of gas. So again, a ball the size of a peach (laughs) exploded into two trillion galaxies. One average large star's galaxy, the Milky Way, contains 200 to 400 billion stars. Out of those, a medium-sized star, which we call the sun, is the center of our solar system, with objects rotating around it. Our solar system contains what we have observed to be planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, almost 150 moons rotating, orbiting those planets, possibly 750,000 dwarf planets, like Pluto, that keeps getting... (laughs) reassigned planet, dwarf planet, (laughs) poor Pluto, along with those millions of asteroids, comets, meteoroids, and other objects. Unfathomably immense universe, right? I mean, I can't even begin to picture this or imagine this. Out of all of that, only one Earth contains life that we know of. But here on Earth, it's not just one kind of life. Life on this planet is diverse, It's varied, it's assorted, it's different from species to species. In fact, it's so diverse that the best estimate, the smartest people among us who study life on this earth, the best estimate for how many species we have on this earth is somewhere between 3 million and 30 million different kinds of species on this earth. You can't narrow it down more than that. (laughs) You know, would you like 3 M&Ms or 30 M&Ms? Would you like 3 million or 30 million M&Ms, right? No thanks, but (laughs) that's a lot of minutes. But somewhere between three and 30 million is the best that we can come up with for an estimate of how many different types of species there are on this earth. That's the best level of accuracy we've got. And and it exists, in my mind, it exists nowhere else in the entire universe. And, And we can talk about that later on in our study of Genesis, why I believe that. But some even estimate there are maybe upwards of 100 million different type of species on this planet. Out of this unknown quantity of species, less than half of the least estimate, that is only 1.4 million species have been named, fewer than 1% have been studied for their relationship with their ecosystem around them. Fewer than 1%. Of the 1.4 million species, here we go, over half of them are insects. (laughs) Just of what we know, there are at least... 360,000 different species of green plants, almost 60,000 different types of fungi, 10,000 different species of birds, 8,000 types of reptiles, 5,000 mammals, and over 100 different types of gerbils. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I threw that one in there for fun, but it's true. (laughs) Where are we going with all of this? Okay. (laughs) The world has a competing belief for where all of this came from. They would have you believe that an eternal, powerful, peach-sized bubble randomly and for no reason exploded to create everything that we've been talking about, and then they try to put you down for believing in Genesis. (laughs) Now, this is not about attacking other people. This is not about arguing with other people. It's not about insulting anybody, but the two prevailing notions around us for how we got here are God's account in Genesis and this one the natural account that we've just looked at, both of them require faith in something eternal and powerful and unfathomable (laughs) making everything around us. 
To me, it is much more believable that a personal living being created all of this rather than an accidental purposeless force. And it doesn't matter how much time or pressure you put on it, even if you had all the parts to a wind-up style watch, you couldn't put them together in a bag and have them form themselves accidentally back into a watch. It would decay and fall apart before it would ever come together as a watch. And you started with the parts. The universe didn't even start with the parts. All of those had to be formed and made and then assemble something infinitely more complicated than a watch. So take a moment now, just for a moment, just to worship this God. His work in creation. Take a moment to consider the immensity of this universe, the, the diversity of life on earth. Give praise, give thanks to God in worship for all that he's done, all that he's made, how he's held it all together. You know, that's one of the great mysteries of this universe, how it's all held together. There's, there's something in this universe called dark matter, and it makes up between 80 and 85% of the matter in our universe. The vast majority of the matter in our universe is dark matter, and they don't even know what it is. That, what it, we, I don't know, we can't observe, we can't see it. Our measurements don't quite work right because there's got to be something in this universe that's, that's messing with gravity. It's, it's messing things up. It doesn't work the way. We know it's there. We can't see it. We don't understand it. It's been said that if anybody ever did figure out what dark matter was, they'd be virtually assured a Nobel Prize. But there's no reason that one of our young people who believe in this Genesis account of creation can't be the one to discover what it is. Mankind has been on a search to discover where we came from since the beginning. God says in the beginning, I created the heavens and the earth. God has revealed himself to us clearly in his creation, but mankind has consistently rejected God and his witness. There's been every attempt made to downplay Genesis or replace it with theories or religions. This is what God said. This is what we will believe and what we'll teach in love. Let's talk about the book of Genesis itself. We just have a minute, so we won't go at length about Genesis and, and what we're going to be looking at, but it is a longer book. It's got 50 chapters, but it will not take as long as you might think it would if you've been here. <laughs> uh, as we've studied Mark and, and 1 Peter and 1 Thessalonians and 1 John, we go paragraph through paragraph. Uh, the first few chapters we'll, we'll dive deeply into. But then after that, Genesis is written in, in story form for us to pick up the whole story. And so we'll begin to go and study story by story. But we will still study it deeply and meaningfully to find out how it applies to life that we are living today. It covers the very beginning of creation all the way through the time of the nation of Israel moving to Egypt. And if you counted the time, it would be over 2,200 years of history in the book of Genesis. You can divide Genesis into two parts. You've got them in your notes. They're the primitive history, or primeval if you prefer, in chapters 1 through 11, and patriarchal history in chapters 12 through 50. In those first 11 chapters, we learn so much about who God is, about who mankind is, how it was all created, why there's sin in the world. We said Genesis covers over 2,200 years of history. Chapters 1 through 11 covers 2,000 years of history, just in 11 chapters. The rest of Genesis covers a little more than 200 years. Now, for reference, the rest of the Bible, from Exodus all the way through 
Revelation, we'll say chapter 3, covers only about 1,500 years of history. So more time is, is covered in Genesis 1 through 11 than the rest of the Bible. After chapter 3 of Revelation, you get into a seven-year period and then a thousand-year millennial reign and then eternity. So <laughs> that kind of overrules any kind of time. But without understanding Genesis, not only do we become confused about the basic issues we talked about, why we're here and, and, and what's, what's going on with this world, we, we won't really understand the end and, and how it's all going to be burned up and what's going to replace it with a new heaven and a new earth. It forms the basis for this. Now, the name Genesis comes from the Greek word that means beginnings or generations. The Hebrew name of the book is Bereshith, which means in the beginning. It's the first words there. So why do we call it generations? It's helpful to understand why we call it generations or beginnings in this word Genesis. The word generations in English uh, is the translation from the Hebrew word, and you'll hear English speakers say this word differently, toledot, toldot, toldoth, different ways English speakers, you know, with different accents, toledot and (laughs) toldot and People will say it differently, but it shows up 10 times in the book of Genesis. It seems to be the intended outline for Genesis. So we begin in Genesis with an introduction that describes the creation of the universe in chapter 1. But look at chapter 2, verse 4. And Moses writes, God says through Moses, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then from here, from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through chapter 4, verse 26, it covers what happens to everything after sin comes in, after God makes a promise of redeeming us from sin. Um, After chapter 4, verse 26, look at chapter 5, verse 1. Moses writes, this is the book of the generations of Adam. That's the next section of Genesis. He teaches us what happens in the generations following Adam. From chapter 5, verse 1, through chapter 6, verse 8. So many important lessons there. Chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah, beginning Toledot, number 3. Goes all the way to the end of chapter 9. The next one begins at chapter 10. They're listed in your notes. We won't go through each of those this morning together, but that's the general outline from Genesis about Genesis. They're not all evenly sized, but that's how Moses marked this book and transitioned into different sections that are important for us. If you're interested in studying that more, you can look at commentaries, but I would caution you about so many of the commentaries. They're not all created equally. Uh, Be very careful about the internet. (laughs) Um, You know what there is out there on the internet. But Genesis is a beautiful, complete, arranged explanation of what God wants us to know. So our application for this morning, as we begin this study of Genesis, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to worship God as our creator and our sustainer. We're going to worship him. Now, not just be in awe, not just be impressed, not just be surprised, but living a life of worship, a living sacrifice of worship to this God. Live life the way that God says for the reason that he says, beginning in Genesis. So part of worshiping him is trusting him as we find out how, what he did and and why it all fell apart and how he's going to fix it. We trust in him. Remember 1 Peter 4, 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Studying this word together is how we grow our faith and Genesis undergirds everything we learn about God. 
Part of living a life of worship is faith in him. Hebrews eleven six. we know this verse, without faith it's impossible to please God. But it says, whoever would draw near to him must believe he exists. <laughs> You've got to believe he exists first before you draw near to him. And that he rewards those who seek him. We're going to seek him together in Genesis. This keeps our faith strong and firm and growing. A part of living a life of worship is making disciples. So studying Genesis is going to help us to worship him by telling others about his truth. It's a blessing to study this. It will be a blessing, I hope, for all of us. Father, we praise you. We praise you and lift up your name. We exalt the great name of our creator God. Lord, we entrust our souls to you, the faithful creator, the one who has made everything, and the one who told us, the one who revealed to us how you made it just by your word, your powerful word. God, we pray that as we study this word, the beginning words of your word, God, that you would give us the teaching, the instruction that we need, Lord. Grow and, and, and strengthen our faith, Father. God, we pray that you would give us this truth, not so that we can just get smarter and get more knowledgeable, but God, so that, that we can trust in you in whatever happens in our lives. God, so that we can tell others about this truth of who you are, how you've created us, how you care for us. God, how you didn't just turn your back on us when we turned to sin. Father, thank you for the message of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your promise at the beginning in chapter 3 of Genesis. God, the first gospel, the good news. We pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us in the gospel, that we would live in the gospel every day, that we would speak the gospel to those around us. Father, we pray this for your glory and for your namesake. And God, we ask that you would be praised and glorified, that you would be blessed, and that you'd be rejoicing over your people living in love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.